This week on a lively experiment, Governor McKee's emergency orders allowing for COVID restrictions expire next week. Will he renew them? And another week goes by, we'll tell you who's in and who's out of the major political races. A lively experiment is generously underwritten by. Hi, I'm John Hazen White Jr. For over 30 years, a lively experiment has provided insight and analysis of the political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm a proud supporter of this great program and Rhode Island PBS. Joining us on the panel, Dr. Pablo Rodriguez, retired professor at the Warren Alpert School of Medicine, Republican strategist Lisa Pelosi, and political contributor Sam Howard. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Lively Experiment. I'm Jim Humble. It is great to have you with us this week. Well, to mask or not to mask, vax cards at the door, Zoom meetings for public bodies. All of those things are in play as the governor's latest COVID-19 orders, emergency orders, expire next week. This time he is asking the General Assembly leadership for permission to extend them for another 60 days. Let, let me set the table on this. We're taping Friday morning on Thursday night. The governor extended the underlying order for 30 days, but it really is now in the General Assembly's hands as to whether they're going to go. Uh, February 14th is the deadline for the other order. So, Lisa, we've been talking about this for two years. Um, I understand they're still trying to navigate. I wonder at, one, at what point you'll lose the public on this, right? Right. So I think what we have here is just an ongoing power struggle between the General Assembly and the governor. It's between the legislative branch and the executive branch. So, you know, when we have Congress people go across to foreign countries, you can't have 535 secretaries of state. You can't have multiple people, you know, running a public health crisis. So you need to have a point person here that should be the governor. They should be the governor working with public health officials, his Department of Health, and other um, public health officials and doctors and providers to provide the best advice, get the advice from the General Assembly, but the governor absolutely has the power to determine what we should be doing. Do you think it is a power struggle or do you think there's a, there is a, a difference of opinion about where we are from a health standpoint, those discussions within state government? This entire pandemic has been a problem uh, with politics uh, and people thinking that they know better than the public health experts. Uh, and I, I truly believe, like Lisa, that um, in an emergency, when we're still seeing hospitals being overwhelmed, where we still have uh, uh, soldiers <laughs> working at Rhode Island Hospital, you know, it's not the time to have, you know, a few hundred people trying to determine public health policy for the state. So um, whether it is a, a, a political struggle or not, I really don't care. I think the most important thing is that we need decisive action when we are facing a public health uh, emergency, and only the executive branch has that ability. Sam? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think the the, it would have been good to have, you know, a figure like Nicole Alexander Scott right now. Uh, losing her, I think, sort of damages the governor's credibility because who is, you know, who's giving him advice? And he's got some folks, certainly. But, uh, you know, the legislature is just not set up in its current configuration to make decisions quickly. And this is a public health emergency, and you need to make decisions quickly. The issue, I think we've had you on uh, often on masks in school. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because it's shifting a little bit. Scott Gottlieb, uh, former FDA commissioner, and Ethan Ajish Shah, our own uh, Ajish Shah from Brown, are beginning to talk about maybe scaling back a little bit. Has your thinking changed about that in terms of schools? Of course, we're going to get to that point. I don't think we're at that point yet. When, you know? what, what in your mind 
is going to get us to that point? Well, uh, we have to have hospitals that can function. <laughs> and we don't have that uh, right now. And we have to see a decrease in the number of deaths in the, and in the number of, of cases. Last week, uh, we had triple the number of pediatric cases uh, in the United States, triple uh, from the peak from Delta. So we're still in the middle of this. Uh, and I think um, the, 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 the problem is not just with children becoming infected because people think, oh, kids don't die, so it's okay. There, there are consequences for children becoming infected. The schools, which we want to remain open, that's the best way for them. The only way we're going to keep the schools open is by reducing the chance of transmission among the staff. But the counter argument to that is then you're there for six hours a day, but then you go in other spots and the kids are not with their mask and they're playing with each other and they go whatever. So what about that risk? The, that actually is an argument for using masks in school because you're going to be bringing the community transmission, which is still considered high, uh, to the school and causing the school to close, causing many students to be uh, contaminated and then having to send, be sent home because of the quarantine rules. So we have to just keep our eyes on the ball. What do we want? We want schools open. We want kids in school. How do we achieve that? Do we achieve that with masks or without masks? It's very simple. And the problem from the beginning through this past couple of um, two years is the lack of consistency. So when it comes to masks, do, do you wear them or not? What type of mask do you wear? Or, you know, should we wear one? Should you wear two? What kind of you know, face coverings? So there hasn't been consistent messaging. And what's been unfortunate is the size of Rhode Island is a county in places like Virginia where they have one date, one mandate for all. But in our small state of Rhode Island with 39 cities and towns, it's like everybody can choose what you know, they want to do. So we haven't had a consistent mask policy. And I don't think we want to be a society always to wear masks. So we have to determine the time that it's necessary and have people understand the need and the importance of wearing a mask, but then there has to be times when we can then get the freedom and not wear a mask again. Yeah, I mean, I think this is overwhelmingly popular. There was a Hassenfeld poll just a couple weeks ago, 80%, 78% of parents in who have children in public schools, they want them to wear masks. I mean, they also want them to be in school, right? This is the way you go to school, you wear a mask. We also have to remember these are workplaces, like there are adults here. So even if we aren't, if you feel you aren't concerned about transmission between children, there are uh, teachers who have the right to go to a workplace that's safe and healthy, right? And so I think, you know, rather than being concerned about masks, we should be talking about, is there proper ventilation in these schools? A lot of these schools are horribly old. They have mold. They have asbestos, you know. And what um, happened to all that money that yeah. was supposed to be the influx of, well, even a couple of years ago in Providence, and then the federal money? What's the federal, done with that? Exactly. I mean, so I think, you know, that's, if we're going to be talking about healthy schools, we should really be talking about what's the air quality in our schools? Because it's and, and buildings, you know, across the state, because it's been terrible, and that's and that's really something we need to. Fix. Maybe even a few schools that you went to, right back in the day. Definitely. I mean, I think, I think I went to Classical High School uh, a couple years ago. It was slated to actually get renovations, and they were talking about that when I was there. Yeah. So. What about that? Whatever happened to the school well, renovations? There, there, there's been some construction and some fixing uh, of the schools, but not enough to really, you know, create you know safe environments at this point. Uh, and and one more point that I think is really really important. We still are learning about this bug and about this pandemic. We don't know the long-term side effects of having COVID, even if you don't have symptoms. Right now, what we know about children, 2.5 times the rate of diabetes after having COVID. Uh, you know, that's not a, um, a, a trivial, you know, finding. 
And as time goes by, I think we're going to find more and more things that are going to go wrong with our society. I don't mean to be a buzzkill, but I was just <laughs> reading in the last couple of days another variant beyond Omicron. What what are you hearing about that? Oh, absolutely. It's uh, it's uh, Omicron two. Uh, you know that that is becoming again more popular in Europe. And usually, what happens is that it it moves to the United States and then it, it happens here. This is the point. Uh, politicians have a one-week memory. Mm. <laughs> Public health officials have a hundred-year memory, and we know that we almost were out, you know, in Ju Fourth of July, Easter, yeah. it's going to be over. Mission accomplished. You know, mission accomplished. No, then it comes Delta. When Delta was controlled, oh, that's it. It's over. Christmas is going to be great. Omicron shows up, and in two weeks, in two weeks, the country just exploded. Yeah, and Governor, Governor McKee even admitted that. He had said, we thought at Thanksgiving this was over, and that was one of the reasons the lag on testing. Have you guys gotten your tests? We signed up for them, you know, the ones they're supposed to be getting through the post office. It's going to be over by the time we get them. I put my order in on January 18th. Here we are. And they still haven't arrived at my house yet, so. I did it on the first day. Yeah. Have you gotten them yet? Before, no, nothing. Yeah, I haven't gotten them either. Not All right. But one more point, if I could, sure. I mean, I wanted to defer to the doctor because uh, this came through my mind. Maybe one of the pluses that have come out of the past two years of COVID by wearing the mask, the hand washing, whatever, we're not talking about flu as much. You know, and I know last year the flu season was lower. Well, it was non-existent last right. year. Right. More this, a little bit more this year, or not? Uh, no, no, no. It, it, it's really, it's really not as bad as as it's been in the past. Um, and I think it, it's really one of the positive side effects of wearing masks. I haven't had a cold in two years. That and being able to wear pajamas on the Zoom call and nobody knows <laughs> it, right? But that's a uh, yeah. I trade that for normality. Mm -hmm. um, let's move on to politics. Uh, another week comes. Uh, the congressional CD2 district. Um, is going to be the talk of the town. We talked last week about Seth Magaziner dropping out of the race. A couple more people have gotten into it. Joy Fox, who was a former uh, staffer for Jim Langevin. She actually worked for Governor Raimondo. Uh, Sam, this is the first time we've had you on. Let me just put the question to you. Was it a smart move for Magaziner or not? I don't think so. I, I think, you know, it strikes me as inauthentic. Like, he was running for governor. Um, I thought Dan McGowan's column was pretty much right on the money there. Um, Where he suggested that he not, not run, run he's staying for, governor. And he did that, the opposite, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think, you know, that he doesn't live in the district, even though it's not required, like, it, I and mean, we probably shouldn't require it. Uh, it just feels wrong. Like, he's got the money, he's going to force all these people out. Um, that said, I mean, like, who else is running? I mean, like, Ed Pacheco feels a little bit like uh, Bill Lynch did in 2010. Um, and. Uh, when Cicilline ran. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, and the, just a sort of like throwback from the past, chairman of the party, uh, Joy Fox is a political operative, Omar Ba, um, who is, uh, you know, from the Refugee Dream Center. I don't know that he has a political base to start with. I think it's just, you know, he does have a good case that he is the strongest candidate. Does this put Seth Magaziner in the front or does money not do everything for you at this point? I, you know, I mean, it does feel like I think there, you know, I think there was a, there was an ask from the sort of the liberal wing of the party for either a woman or a person of color um, to to run, and here's this rich white guy who, you know, is kind of a political dynast in some ways, and uh, from the east side of Providence, and he's coming into the more conservative of the two congressional districts. I think, you know, I think that could be harmful. Yeah, I think he could have tough, a tough time. It is interesting. They said that the gerrymandering, I will use that word, from 10 years ago that made it a little bit more conservative might give the Republicans 
an opportunity this go around. You know, when you think about it, since World War II, there have only been four Republicans who've represented Rhode Island in the U.S. Congress. You know, so and this, you work for one of them. And didn't you? I did, I did. So um, this could very well be the year for a Republican, and we know that former mayor of Cranston, Alan Fong, is seriously considering the run, which would be, um, I think, a really a great entry to the race because he's run statewide before. But here's the thing: I've worked on both in the governor's office and I've worked in Congress. And I think people have to understand the difference between those two offices. So when I think of Seth Magaziner, when I think of Joy, I think of, watch the evening news. What's your stance on Ukraine? Should we be having you know, troops going over to Eastern Europe? You know, what about the cybersecurity issues in China you know, and, the, and, and trade issues? They have to be prepared to answer questions like that. It's not just you know, the pothole on you know, Allen's <laughs> Avenue in, in Providence that you have to address. So that's, for Seth, I was very disappointed. I thought he would be a very strong, serious contender for governor. When he made his announcement of why he was running for the congressional seat, it was all politics. We have to keep the seat in Democrats' hands. We have to make sure Republicans don't do it. But what's your vision? Exactly. I thought it was brilliant. He was not going to win. Oh, governor's race. He was race. not going to win. All right, let's get the he disclosure out win. here. The let's disclosure get the disclosure first. Nelly Gorbea is my go. best friend. <laughs> so so I, let's let everybody know that. That's first. right. That's right. But I, but I, I have seen the polls and I have seen the cross tabs, you know, and uh, the race was really between Nelly Gorbea and the governor. Uh, he was a distant third. Um, and I'm sure he did polls, too, that uh, said the same but thing. But it is February. Uh, yeah, the governor has much more opportunity to screw up again. Uh, <laughs> that I mean, uh, it, 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 name recognition, money, and then politics. That's what is going to make this race because we only have, what, eight months before mm -hmm. the primary? Mm -hmm. So you have to raise millions of dollars to be able to be competitive, um, and you have to be name recognized. The only one that has name recognition at this point in that race is Seth Magaziner and Alan Fong. Uh, and the Boston Globe is already writing about the future race between Alan Fong and, and Seth Magaziner. It's, you know, I think I've been starting to think about what the summer's going to be looking like because we have three main races. You were talking last week on the show about a runoff, you know, if we need it for primaries. There'll be certain races or certain candidacies that we'll know by September primary. So then you start working backwards. So all this money, you can't be spending money on TV in the summertime because mm -hmm. who's at home watching TV? So I'm starting to think that maybe the candidates should be setting up shop down at the beaches and having the planes go by with their names on it because it's Free deals for everyone. Yeah, I mean, the primaries in September really are going to decide perhaps who's going to be in office next year. Yeah. Well, how does this change the governor's race now that he's left? I think, I mean, I think it rebounds to, to Nelly, but it also puts McKee in the strongest financial position, right? So I think I think it's going to be, if you were dissatisfied with McKee, your sort of main options were, um, were Magazina or Gorbea, um, and now all you have basically is Gorbea, or you could go to Matt Brown. I just, I don't think Matt Brown has much of a popular base. I think he was just the anti-Ramondo in 2018, and so I think it's now down, it's probably more to McKee and Gorbea. Um, yeah, and I don't see Mino you know, as having much impact either. There was a big splash with the political cooperative, and he was going to get 50 candidates and Cynthia Mendez, and they're running together. You haven't heard so much. Do you think that's going to be gearing up as we get a little closer to signing time? I, I mean, I think, one, they announced really early they weren't prepared for redistricting, which was a foreseeable thing. Um, they, the incumbent protection plan. Right, right, <laughs> right. Like, you knew that was going to happen and that they could do shenanigans uh, with that. And... 
Um, and so it behooved them not to announce until the districts were uh, in place. Uh, also, 50 candidates sounds like a lot, but if but they're running them also like locally, so right. that's not enough to control a majority. And so if we're talking about like what a govern what a governing majority is in the state, like even if you put in Matt Brown and Cynthia Mendez in the top spots, you still have to you know pass things through the legislature, legislature, which means having enough having a majority of the caucus in the Democrats, having a supermajority in both chambers to pass a budget, um, and having a three fifths majority to override a veto. Those are they, 50 people is not enough. This is the problem the Republicans face every year, right? They just don't have enough candidates to actually take power. Where is the Republican candidate? I know you don't run the party. Yeah, there you go. Uh, we're waiting, we're waiting, we're waiting. I know. And then to hear, um, came out this week, I think I should give credit to Kathy Gregg about a, a woman. It was at Ashley Cross. I can't, I'm sorry, I don't remember. Callis. Callis, Callis. you know. Right. And I'm thinking, this is the best we can do. We can bring someone who works for a governor out of state to in Rhode, Illinois, in, right, to, to Rhode Island. So I mean, right. that was almost going to be my outrage this week. You know, <laughs> this is the best the Republican Party. Can you do. wonder how many asks there were, and then there was a turndown. And then again, of course, your colleague from the Omnibus administration, Dave Darlington. Where I mean, is he in witness protection? What, what I know, you know, you have that initial flurry, and then it's just I don't know what's been happening, honestly, um, behind the scenes right now. So, so that's why someone like me, I was looking at maybe could I live with Seth Magaziner, and then he goes over. The, you know, to do CD2 instead, so I don't even know where I'm going to be Where does Helena folks fit in here, do you think? Uh, name recognition, money, and politics. She has zero name recognition, and the only name recognition... But she's got a lot of money. Well, a lot of money, but the only name recognition that she has, oh, she made $29 million, you know, she was part Hudson of Bay, CBS, yeah. we know, when... Opioid when, crisis. Opioid crisis. Right? Yeah. I mean, that's not the kind of name recognition that you want uh, in a state that doesn't know who you are. Uh, and in a state that increasingly is having more difficulty with uh, rich people uh, controlling the politics. Yeah, what, what does she need to, need to do to gain traction, do you think? I mean, I think, I think she has to, like, spread the money around. I don't know. I mean, like, it, it, there is, I think, space for, like, we've seen, like, Clay Powell and we've seen uh, Guillaume de Ramel show up before, right? I mean, like, I think they just don't build organic... Movements they don't supply support to like down ballot races, which is what they could do, and they could build that sort of uh, that sort of grassroots support by being you know good supporters of progressive or liberal causes within the state. Um, they just they they have a ton of money and they run for themselves, right? I mean, um, folks may be a pretty good liberal for all for I mean, from what I see of her position, she seems like down the line saying things I agree with. But is that going to make me support her over someone like Nelly? Is that going to make me support her over someone like Minos? You know, I mean, like, or, or Matt Brown, you know? I mean, I think they... I'm giving money to Mitch McConnell, you know? Uh, <laughs> well, that, yeah, yeah, that doesn't you know, That didn't help either. Well, yeah, but that's... But you well. know everybody plays the game. They go, they go on both sides. So, I mean, that's going to hang her in some ways. But, you know, people give to Republicans and Democrats. I don't fault right? her for that. I mean, you know, you, when, when you're in business, you, you have to look at both sides, you know? And that was a number of years ago. And that's unfortunate, excuse me, <clears throat> that it's come out. She has already pivoted, and you know she's changed her campaign staff. She's already pivoted. She knew she needed to use her family name more to start connecting with Rhode Island. You know yep. the way Gina uh, Ramondo connected by saying, you know, her about her father, and you know how many Mullivan, times yep. we heard heard that over and over again. She has to get beyond the I've run a big company, I can run the state. So I need to hear a little bit more from Drill her down. about why she's a viable candidate. You know, Sam made a great point about the party building and being able to get to the budget. And I thought the missed opportunity was Don Kacheri. 
Don Kachiri came in, he had a lot of political capital, 2002. The, the time would have been 2004 to get Republicans. You know, we haven't had many Republicans since 1983. Remember the whole, with all of that. And he he didn't pay attention, and then he had his own reelection in 2006. And then by that point, he's a lame duck. So all of those years that he could have cashed in on that, let's at least be able to sustain a veto, and it never happened. I know, I know. And so there's been different times that the party's focused on trying to do general assembly races or just trying to make sure that we're fielding candidates for all the general officers so we have an opponent and all that. So it's been a back and forth. But again, you know, Rhode Island is a very tough state to run as a Republican. Uh, yeah, yeah, go ahead. I just think, that, you know, there aren't enough Republicans. Just as like just as a numbers game, you have to staff every district committee. There are 130, 113 of those, right? And you have to staff three or five to seven people on each of those. It's a lot of people. It's a lot of people, and um, it, that the introduction of district committees, you can watch the number of Republicans running for general assembly just go down from that moment. Um, and you know, I mean, I just think if you're trying to crack, they also just aren't running people in districts that they have potential to run in. I mean, like Fenton Fung, I think was Mattiel's like first challenger. Mm. That district had been Republican for years, right. like a majority Republican. Well, Steve Frias, but. Yeah, Steve Frias, right, yeah. 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 Um, are you at the point of meeting in a phone booth yet, or are we not down to those uh, numbers? Well, you never know. I mean, it's still February, right? So, and they don't have to put their names on, you know, for candidacy until June. So you never know who's going to come forward. So I think there'll be some surprising you know, people coming forward to say that they're going to run. Let's do this. We've got a couple other things. Let's uh, do outrages and or kudos. Lisa, let's begin with you this week. Okay, so have? I have a kudo that's booked in by two outrages. So last I'm looking forward to I, this. I was like thinking about this. So, I, you know, last Saturday, like all of us, I was home watching the blizzard of 22 happen and wondering when the snow was going to stop. Is my power going to, you know, stay on? And I'm looking at email and I see the rumors of Tom Brady's retirement. Uh. I thought, how can this day get any worse? You know, <laughs> you know, to look at that. Then the days went by. He, he made his announcement. My kudos to him and great thanks for all the wonderful memories and the Super Bowl victories. Then the media and maybe some folks started saying, how come he didn't mention Patriots Nation in his, you know, goodbye, you know? And I said, come on, get over Are it. Are you outraged at the media or at Tom Brady? Oh, never Tom Brady, never okay. outraged at him. So, <laughs> so he's gonna go into the Hall of Fame because of his time here in exactly. New England, so. Exactly. Pablo, what do you have? Well, my outrage is um, uh, uh, Dr. Alexander Scott's compensation uh, and not the outreach that you don't you think would it's expect. enough. I don't think it's enough. Okay, Alexander Scott got the contract for forty-six thousand dollars a month or whatever it is because her contract was um, breached. Uh, the governor didn't want her, and she's like, "Okay, and this is what happens when you don't follow a contract. You have to pay." So is that to a buyout? Out. Is it a buyout? Uh, it's a buyout. There's no doubt about it. In my mind, that's what it is. But no, most importantly, is the median salary for an, a health officer in the United States is $175,000. Alexander Scott makes 143. Right. And there uh, were a lot of median. There were many who were well into the 200s, right? right? Uh, Stephen Pryor, our Commerce Secretary, you know, you know, I, I don't fault him for it. He makes 225. Mm -hmm. He runs an office of 55 people. Dr. Alexander Scott runs a department of 500. Yeah. So, you know. There is a lot of disparity in state government, and she doesn't even crack the top 100 Do you employees. know the story behind the story? Do you have any insight? We were trying to figure this out last week. What behind her leaving and the rift? I mean, what are we missing here? If I do, I can't tell. All right. <laughs> My lips are sealed. <laughs> Sam, what do you have? You have an outrage or kudo this week? 
Uh, it's going to be an outrage. Um, and I think it's just the understaffing at uh, HHS that's preventing people from getting SNAP. I mean, this is the most effective anti-poverty program we have in the federal arsenal. And the state needs to be a good steward of it. We've created SNAP like a punching bag um, in the state. And, and there was a lawsuit over that too, right? Yeah. Yeah, and exactly. They, they, uh, Deming Sherman was appointed to be the the overseer. Yeah, I think the I think the chaos and just getting people food like that shouldn't be a hard thing to do. That should be very simple, especially when you're just you know loading money up onto a card. It's not. It shouldn't be hard. Uh, it shouldn't be hard for people to qualify. We're making. If we learned anything in this pandemic, it's that getting people assistance can be really easy. It can be fast. It can be simple. We're making. We're making simple things hard for no good reason. We're celebrating because the numbers are down. Yeah. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. All right. Uh, we didn't get a chance to talk about it last week. Supreme Court uh, Justice uh, Stephen Breyer is retiring. Uh, this opens up the first pick for President Biden. There's been, I think, a little bit of a, a maybe a disagreement in strategy upon the Republicans. You know, the feeling is, oh, let's go after him. But I've read some articles that have said, look, it's going to go to a, a, a liberal replacement justice. Is this what we want to spend our capital on? What do you think the Republicans should be doing in this? Putting up the not I mean, you want to do the checks and balances and the hearings, but is this the hill you want to die on? For the I don't Supreme think court? so. I don't think so, because exactly what you said about the balance in the court, you know, we, we won't see that changing with this pick at all. So I think, you know, as we look for, you know, going through the nomination process, not only should we be looking at the Republicans, we should be looking at the Democrats. I don't you know, they have shown that they're not full in lockstep behind um, President Biden on a lot of issues. So you can't automatically go into this nomination thinking that all Democrats are going to be, you know, behind this pick. So it's not just the Republicans. And the two that you should be watching, obviously, are Maine Senator Susan Collins and Alaska Senator Lisa Murkowski, who tends to, you know, walk away from the party a little bit down more the road of integrity. But we have those two senators on the Democrat side who have been holding up some things. And who knows what kind of back, you know, door bargaining is going to happen to get this big... I, I love how Lindsey, sorry to cut you off, I love how Lindsey Graham got backlash. Lindsey Graham is the most down the line, loves Trump. He said he thinks the black woman, uh, um, a child from South Carolina be great. The blowback on him was unbelievable because he gave, in their eyes, gave an inch. And this is the sad state of affairs in this country, that the default it's not, let's see what the qualifications are. Let's see how good a, a judge this person can be. Is that it's being nominated by a Democrat, so we Republicans need to completely, you know, stand, you know, lock our hands and completely block the nomination. It really is a sad state of affairs. I was remiss in not giving you an official welcome. I usually do that before the outrage of the kudo. This is Sam Howard's debut. Um, glad to have you on the show, and uh, we look forward to having you back. Any thoughts on the Supreme Court? Yeah, I mean, I think we're just we're gonna. It's gonna be a 50-50 vote at best. I mean, like at worst case, Manchin and Sinema vote against it as well. I mean, I think. Yeah, but would they really on this one? Yeah, I think I don't. I mean, I don't trust them. <laughs> I don't. I don't. I don't trust them as far as I could throw them. You know. Um, I think. I think the. The Republican Party is just gonna vote lockstep against whatever he puts up. It doesn't matter if it's a black woman. It doesn't matter if it's a white dude. You know. I mean, I think they're. They're just going to turn this person into a communist or something and <laughs> say, like, you know, we don't want to support them. And it's the leverage. You know, yeah. there, you know the two senators that you mentioned um, on, on the Democrat side, look at the leverage that they have. He needs to have the full 50 to get this pick through. So what do those two be asking in and return? And Joe Manchin he, knows it, doesn't he? Oh, yeah. He knows how to play that game. But yeah. also, if the Republicans can hold that seat open, they get 
you know, they get a 7-2 court as opposed to a 6-3. Well, they've said they're going to put it through on the fast track just as Ms. Barrett was. And to so. me, it's, it's an acknowledgement that the Senate's going to go Republican. Yeah. Everybody November. just thinks it's a foregone conclusion. All right, folks, that is all the time we have. Pablo and Lisa and Sam, good to have you. Thank you so much. And, uh, folks, if you don't catch us at 7 on Friday or Sunday at noon, we're all over social media, Facebook. Go to our website, ripbs.org slash lively. We have all the shows there. And wherever you get your favorite podcast, take us along with you. Uh, come back here next week as the Lively Experiment continues. Have a great week. A Lively Experiment is generously underwritten by... Hi, I'm John Hazen White, Jr. For over 30 years, A Lively Experiment has provided insight and analysis of the political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm a proud supporter of this great program and Rhode Island PBS.